Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of the History Workshop podcast. I'm Hannah Elias, part of the editorial team behind History Workshop Online. We're really excited to be starting this new podcast series, and over the coming weeks and months, you'll hear all kinds of different podcasts from us. The History Workshop Online channels the spirit of the History Workshop movement, creating histories that reflect on present-day issues and agitating for change in the world that we live in. For this very first podcast, I had a chance to sit down with six scholars in the early phase of their careers at the Radical Histories Conference at Queen Mary University of London on the 2nd of July. They ran a really excellent panel discussion on precarious working conditions in the university. This is an issue that's familiar to many. It not only affects thousands of early career academics throughout the UK, but it's fundamentally an issue about how universities are run for staff and students. If those precarious conditions are left as they are, Teaching quality in universities can only diminish, and we will be denied some promising scholarship. I'll let our speakers introduce themselves. Here's our conversation. Uh, a note about the sound, it does get a little bit quiet in places, so bear with us. Here we go. Would you like to just introduce yourselves? I am Jack Saunders. Um, I'm a, a postdoc at Warwick University, um, and an activist with a face that's fighting against casualisation in education. I'm Rob Waters. I'm a um, part-time lecturer at New York University in London and also a part-time lecturer at Queen Mary University in London in a precarious position in my employment. Uh, I'm Harry Stopes. I'm a PhD student at University College London. Um, I have been a teacher at various points during my PhD, although I'm not at the moment. I'm Laura Schwartz. I'm a lecturer at the University of Warwick, so I'm no longer precarious. And I'm a um, member of the UCU committee for the Warwick University branch. Uh, I'm Alba Trowbert, um, currently trying to finish up my PhD at Edinburgh University, um, where I have a teaching assistant contract and I've also done some casual lecturing in Germany. Okay, so yesterday you guys talked about precarious working conditions in the university. What does it mean to have precarious working conditions? Perhaps the best way to frame this is to talk about, first of all, what non-precarious working conditions look like. Um, in broad brush terms, you could characterize that as um, a permanent contract um, that is paid throughout the year. It's important to state that. Um, that generally that's full-time unless you don't want to be full-time um, and where you have um, protection from dismissal or redundancy through terms that are built into your contract or university statutes um, and those are essentially the basic characteristics of what you would call you know the ideal proper job that, um, that combines some lecturing and some research um, and then there are lots of different ways in which precarious employment doesn't match that. Obviously um, the most kind of notable thing is that uh, your work is insecure but there's a lot more to it than that. Anybody else want to join in? Any other ways that, that working precariously is expressed? What are some other examples? Well I mean one of the first things that happens um, when you work in academia and this is a, a long-standing practice and is not really new is that um, you're really it's really sort of encoded into your life as an academic from the very beginning that, that you will be doing 
bits of work um, which are um, which are hourly paid, which is um, as a as a teaching assistant, as a postgraduate teaching assistant, a lot of teaching is delivered by postgraduate teaching assistants um, who are very rarely given a. I mean, never given a program over the course of their entire PhD as to what will be expected of them in terms of, of teaching. Um, they'll be given often a term of teaching, um, with, with, which will be paid by the hour, um, which usually, um, in almost every case, will involve um, a, a long list of tasks which far exceeds the actual hours the, the university likes to imagine that you do. So you get to a position where people are effectively working for less than the living wage or less mm-hmm. than the minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the survey we did at UCL was um, we, it came out that um, uh, at UCL, on average, about forty percent of the work PGTH were doing was unpaid. I don't think that's actually particularly um, bad compared compared to much of the rest of the sector. Actually, I yeah. think there are much worse employers than, than UCL. Yeah, we did a survey at Warwick recently that about 100 people responded to, and we similarly found that once you averaged out the amount of hours people were working with the pay they were receiving, they were getting about the minimum wage. How does, uh, how does it also affect people standing in the departments if they're on a casual or fixed-term contract versus a permanent contract? How does that play into other elements of um, what your status is in the department or your access to resources? Well, it would obviously vary from place to place, and um, needless to say, but um, there are lots of things that really add up to kind of um, quite substantial impediments to working effectively. So if you don't have an office or you have to share an office with lots of different people, um, uh, in myself as a, as a PGTA in the past, when we held office hours, we had to go to the reception to get the key to um to to go to the you know the office to do our office hours and it's really kind of demeaning um mm-hmm. as well as impractical you might not have um uh you know access to it facilities and all these kinds of things mm-hmm. kitchen facilities social facilities you know staff rooms mm-hmm. uh, so talking aside from the effects of the the precarious employment on the individual who's under that contract what are some of the, the bigger effects, bigger impacts of this pattern of precarious employment throughout the university, throughout the academy? Well, one of the things um, that I've been thinking about a lot and had a really interesting conversation with, with some colleagues about earlier this year in Glasgow at an event about precarity in, in arts and academia, respectively, was that... Um, the people who you know who rely most on on being able to get these kinds of hours in are the people that don't have access to direct funding for their research. Um, so they they are probably more likely to be the kinds of people that research a topic that's seen as outside of the canon. Um, they're statistically more likely to have a deep personal vested interest in those topics. So they're more likely to be members of minorities and underrepresented groups within academia. Um, and if they're not able. To have secure work to, to that makes them able to pay their way through their studies and, and make a living to even complete their studies, um, then that means that their viewpoints and their interests and their passion will not be represented um, in how academia is shaped, how the canon is shaped, how discourse is shaped. Um, and the same is true for people who have you know caring responsibilities, people who already um, are affected by mental health issues, um, people who cannot physically and mentally and emotionally afford to put in the extra unpaid hours that are expected of us 
um, in order to be deserving of these kinds of contracts. Yeah, maybe it's important to kind of um, note at this point that people doing precarious work are not just PhD students anymore. It's not just this kind of, you know, that you're a PhD student and you do a few hours a week to get some experience. That it's, um, I mean, it's PhD students without funding that are relying on this kind of precarious work to earn a living. But it's also people who've completed their PhDs who increasingly can almost definitely look forward to at least two years of precarious work, and, and that's if they're lucky. And so then what also kicks in is people, you know, often you're required then to have a partner or parents who can financially support you through that two-year period where you have a very piecemeal and an unstable income, and if you don't have access to that kind of money through family networks, then you're also in a much more difficult situation as well. And there's an, another double edge for any woman who's planning a family or thinking of having children. If you're in that pattern of working precariously, that becomes a lot more difficult. I mean, I was speaking. I was speaking to someone just yesterday um, who was coming to the end of uh, who is in the midst of a second year of, po- of postdoc, um, who would like to have a family. Um, and has suggested to me she systematically lies on application forms because. Um, uh, on top of the fact that it's impossible to, you know, it's impossible to plan for a family around this precarious working when you don't know how long it's going to go on, you don't know where you're going to be, um, you don't know how stable your hours and income is going to be, um, that universities have these piles of this kind of arms race of better and better CVs, and you're not sure whether universities are going to go, oh, okay, these two have equally good CVs, but this woman we can solidly predict might want to have a family at some point, so we'll toss that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the, these all kind of fit in together. Yeah. So, uh, what do you guys think about trying to tackle this problem and trying to get headway against it? Because it feels relentless when you're going through it, when you're applying for all of the jobs, you're feeling like you need to participate in this system as it exists right now. How can we go about changing it? Is there anything that we can do as individuals? I mean, I, I talked yesterday in the panel about the importance of finding collective solutions to these problems. So in some ways, the, 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 nature, the nature of the problem can feel particularly individual and personal and isolating. So you blame yourself for not being smart enough or you decide that what you just need to do is just get your head down, work hard enough, don't make trouble in your department and that that is the solution that's going to get you a permanent job. I think probably we need to just wake up to the fact that whether those solutions are politically acceptable or not doesn't really matter anymore because actually they don't work. Yeah, That casualization is now structural to how most university departments work with between 30% and 50% of university staff on casual contracts. That was one of the statistics that came out recently from the UCU around the strike that is at the, that we're sort of ongoing at the moment and one of our demands is to end casualization. Um, so rather than decide that you can solve this through improving your CV or working a bit harder or um, making yourself charming to the right person um, maybe we just have to realise that that's not going to work and that 
we need some kind of collective and structural solution. And for me, that solution involves joining your union, participating in your, you know, both inside and outside the union in workplace organizing with other people. I think uh, participating is the key to that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, when we were organizing TAs at UCL, um, I don't know, we, we never prioritized getting people in the union. We prioritized getting them to meetings. We prioritized getting them to participate in, the, I mean, it was quite low level collective action. It was kind of petitioning and, and asking for a collective bargaining with the department over it. Um, but we always, the priority I think is always, the union is not going to do stuff for you. Mm-hmm. It is, it is a means by which you can do things with, with the people around you. Um, I think that the participating is the really, the really key thing. And I think on another level, and this is something that came up yesterday in the in the discussion as well. Um, while we're pushing for this structural change that we absolutely definitely need, and that there's really no way around, um, on a very personal level, um, we can try very hard to kind of value and validate each other's work now because. Um, you know, there's 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 a huge mental health impact in the kind of imposter syndrome that comes with, yeah, like Laura mm. said, feeling that you're not a proper colleague yet, not a proper academic yet. Mm. Um, and while we're pushing for kind of the system to see and acknowledge and, and fix those problems, we can show solidarity and support to each other, reading each other's work, um, giving each other feedback and support if and when we have the time and energy to do so, and reminding each other that the work that we're doing is already valuable, even though it's not valued in a monetary sense. Yeah, one of the comments that was raised at the panel yesterday by someone in the audience was that a lot of these problems are, are not just unique to people in precarious employment, but also to people in permanent employment. And that uh, this is a larger systemic problem that you know we're, we're feeling the pinch in, in our early career stage, uh, perhaps a bit more severely, um, because the, our margins of survival are so small when you're mm-hmm. paying below minimum wage. But people who are in permanent employment have enormous pressures, increasing workloads, and, and a huge mental health impact as well. Um, what do you guys think about that relationship? Like, is there something that can be done to reform this culture as a whole, or is it something that we can take collective action with our our, our colleagues who are in permanent employment? I mean, I'm a permanent member of staff now, and I still see it as like absolutely imperative that I organize around casualization as well as things that affect me as a permanent member of staff, like pensions and the pay scale. But and I and I don't organize ca- around casualization because I'm a nice person mm-hmm. and want to support casualized poor little casualized workers. Yeah, it's I do it because it's in my own interests to stop increasing casualization in the university. I mean, Quiver from Queen Mary said yesterday, well, you know, wake up permanent staff because maybe you're not going to exist in a few years anyway. Um, there's a there's a direct threat to our contracts being damaged, but also in terms of workload. The more people, the greater proportion of the department that is made up of um, casualized staff, the more that means that the kind of stuff around the edges about supporting students, writing references, doing administrative work, falls on an ever decreasing proportion of permanent staff and exacerbates our workload as well. So I'd kind of argue that although we can see sometimes conflicting um, interests between permanent and casualized staff, or rather, we can sometimes see antagonism between permanent and casualized staff, that ultimately our interests are bound up with each other. And 
actually, although sometimes it feels that permanent staff try to dump as much as possible on casualized staff, that does happen. It's also possible to, to make the arguments to permanent staff that maybe that's not okay. And we, we did that um, at Warwick. And people went away and thought about it and said, oh, yeah, you're right. That's, I hadn't really kind of taken on the degree to which this was such a huge problem within my own workplace and the degree to which I could be complicit in that problem unless I took action to not do that. So I think at Warwick, we do have relatively strong alliances between permanent and casualized staff at the moment. And I, de- I guess I would say that's, it's not an impossible situation to try and build those alliances. I think um, one of the useful things about the session yesterday was um, to, to get these issues, and obviously it was not unique in, in, in having a session like this at a conference like this, to get those issues on the table and the response from permanent staff and senior academics in the room was really warm both at the session and after the session. And I think even just getting this opportunity to kind of get the conversation on the table, even though people are aware of it already, to get people talking about it and to have these kind of flashpoints that can keep it on the agenda is really useful because it's it, it may feel like you're kind of banging your head against the brick wall but yeah yeah it also sometimes doesn't feel like while well, you're the one who's applying for the jobs that things might not be changing for you in the next couple of years while you're while you're looking for a permanent position but, but it's still important to keep fighting for it so that it is leading to a larger change I mean, I also think it's important to bear in mind that, that we're not in a contracting industry. We are not being deindustrialized. We, you know, mm. the university mm. sector is not on the verge of collapse. It has more money than it's ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just prioritizing other places to spend money. Yeah. And the answer for departments that feel like, um, oh, this huge workload is being piled on, on us, um, and, um, we're just going to try and kind of throw that off to casualize stuff. The answer for them is that is that actually what they need to be doing is pushing this problem upwards and saying mm-hmm. to universities, look, you've, you've, you've trebled the number of undergraduates in our department in three years. Um, this means a serious investment in teaching and it means a serious investment in permanent teaching staff. Um, it doesn't mean, oh, let's take on, you know, let's project a load of work onto this, this kind of wider core of casualized workers, be they PhD, postgraduate teaching assistants, teaching fellows, um, and other precarious staff. It doesn't have to be that. It, it can be, well, if we want to do this properly, you need to, there needs to be an increase in the number of permanent staff. Was the very next question I was going to ask that leads it so well? When I raise this issue or mention it to friends or family who are not attached to the academy, their immediate thing they say is, "But didn't tuition prices in the UK go up to nine thousand pounds per student? How is that not being reflected in on the other end of the quality of teaching, and, or not the quality of teaching? Is it not being reflected in the in the amount teachers are getting paid and the amount professors are getting paid?" Um, so, I don't know, what do you guys... I, I think, um, you know, they giveth with one hand and the other yeah. they taketh away. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> I think central government funding, well, not I think, I know, central government funding for universities went down um, for, the te- for the sort of teaching portion mm-hmm. at the same time that fees went up. So it's just a transfer of the burden yeah. rather than an increasing, you know, contribution. And it leads to a different relationship with your students in a way, because now the students are the major investors in the institution and the major investors in the university. And so we want to be giving them good quality for money, but you're limited in what you can 
physically do in a week when you're, say, someone was mentioning yesterday working at three different universities and various working projects. And that's, that's at some point, it becomes physically impossible. Um, and, and do you think students frequently like to, and it's helpful for them to develop a, a, a relationship with members of staff throughout their undergraduate career and throughout their postgraduate career. And when you have um, members of teaching staff who may not even be there the, the following term, and, and, you know, I get emails from students saying, you know, oh, I'm, I'm thinking of doing my dissertation on this, can you offer some advice? Well, my contract's finished, you know, and I will offer the advice, but it's not helpful anyway that I won't then be able to follow that through as they go on through their academic career. And the more that this teaching loads get casualized, um, the more that that's going to be affecting the ways in which students relate to academics and feel part of an academic institution that's kind of solid and, and, and there. Um, so I think that, that has a major impact as well. I'm just going to ask a final question because we're all going to run off to another panel session this afternoon. But last question, i just answer in, in maybe a sentence or a couple of words. What do you think it means for the academy if we fail to fix this problem? Well, this is, I can't necessarily give a brief or all-encompassing answer, but um, it's important to see casualization in the context of what's happening to the academy as a whole. So it's not a side issue, it's central. Um, the pressures on workload on um, permanent senior academics, um, the uh, nature of the workforce, the makeup of the workforce, the way that casualization, as Alva already mentioned, um, reinforces and perpetuates existing inequalities. Um, so all of those things um, are deeply bound up with casualization. So it's not an option to ignore it or, or not fight it. Yeah. Lecturers working conditions are students learning conditions. That's the slogan that we use. Uh, if we don't solve this problem, it means a worse education for students as well as a worse life for lecturers. I thought we were going around the table. <laughs> um, I would just say um, casualization, um, in effect, dictates who it is who can produce, who's allowed to produce scholarship, ultimately. And if you take scholarship seriously, if you take research seriously um, as something that should come from all parts of our community, um, and you automatically say, well, don't be poor, don't be a mother, um, don't be black or minority ethnic, um, don't be someone who's come back to um, studying later in their <coughs> later in life. Um, just be someone with lots of familial support and nobody they need to support, um, who's got plenty of money and and plenty of time and patience um, and the right contacts. Then then you get to be the only person who does research. I, I think that in no way can you take scholarship seriously, can you take um, research seriously as representing all of us if that's the case.